The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This podcast episode was recorded on April 28th and made available to premium subscribers that same day. To become a premium subscriber, you can follow the link mentioned at the outset, contrarian.supercast.com, or visit our substack, contrarianpod.substack.com. There are a host of other benefits that come with a premium membership, including the daily briefing and podcast that is received each market day morning by 7 a.m. Eastern time. This is a summary of the events, data releases, and earnings, and other things that are expected to move markets in the day ahead. It has received rave reviews from premium subscribers, so you should join them and do that by visiting the website contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Now, here is today's episode. Enjoy. Michael Singleton of Invictus Research. Thank you for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. We are here to talk about markets and investing, of course. And these last couple days, weeks, months have been a tough time for stocks. We have tech now in a bear market, consumer discretionary stocks in a bear market, broader indexes are in a correction, and we just had first quarter GDP print negative for the first time since I don't even know when, probably since the, the height of the COVID crisis. So... Now, this, that setup is typically something where contrarians and especially value investors like to use for bargain hunting and for selective, selectively investing and buying stocks. But you aren't buying it. And your long-term, medium-term outlook is more bearish, despite these flashing buy signals. Tell me about that. All right. Well, first... Thank you for having me, Nat. And I think uh, I think I'll, I'll probably take uh, the perspective of positioning and why that's important for this one, because I think 
a lot of contrarians believe that the street and the investor class generally is too bearish and that because they're bearish, that's uh, at least some supporting evidence that the market should uh, be due for a, a run of strong performance here. And uh, I think I think actually Business Insider just came out with sort of a contrarian uh, headline that said everyone's worried about a recession, which means strong, you know, strong stock performance ahead or something to that effect. Right. And if Business and, Insider is saying this, they're almost as bad as Barron's. So that is, if anything, another sell signal, but go ahead. Right, the, the old magazine cover mm. indicator test. So uh, maybe the first thing I would point out is that um, I think people use the word recession flippantly in this business because interestingly, the truth is nobody actually knows what a recession is. I don't know what it is. Wall Street doesn't know what it is. Recessions are declared by a government agency called the National Bureau of Economic Research and they're declared uh, months after they actually happen. So markets don't really trade on recession fears. That's uh, sort of a misconception. They trade on the growth cycle. So slowing growth, not technically a recession, sort of a semantic distinction there. But if you want evidence uh, that that's true, um, you can just look at the year-over-year -year rate of change in the S&P 500 versus uh, any year-over-year -year measure of growth. We use the ISM manufacturing PMI uh, quite a bit, but they look exactly the same. Why? Because growth is the primary driver of asset market returns or stock market returns. So, you know, in principle, you should let the growth cycle uh, drive your asset allocation decisions, not the headlines about recession risk. But back to my original point about positioning. Why do we care about positioning in the first place? Why do contrarians care about positioning in the first place? Uh, and it's because when people are too bearish and they don't own enough stocks and the market goes up, they have to buy or cover their shorts, which pushes the market up higher. When investors are too bullish and they're overextended in terms of uh, in terms of taking risk, when vol spikes, they have to take risk down, which exacerbates the sell-off. So, in short, uh, when positioning is really lopsided one way or the other, that's when non-linear moves in price tend to occur. So, obviously, contrarians or just investors in general, good investors, want to be positioned on the right side of these non-linear moves in price, uh, or at least avoid being on the wrong side. But the underlying logic of uh, everything I just said is people actually have to have money on the line, right? Whether people say they're feeling bullish or bearish uh, or not is sort of irrelevant. What's relevant is how they're actually positioned. If things get bad enough, in this case, could they, would they have to unwind their positions? Would they have to sell, uh, you know, thus exacerbating the downside? That's, um, that's really what we care about. Hmm. A lot of investors right now, um, you know, contrarian investors or people that just observe sentiment are citing the AAII survey numbers, because I think, as everyone knows, the most recent readings have shown investors to be very, very bearish. But in our view at Invictus, uh, those surveys do not carry a lot of economic weight. Anyone can say they're bearish or worried about the economy. I mean, actually, I can tell you, if I had a ton of exposure to equities right now, I would probably be even more worried about the economy. Mm. Um, so in any case, at Invictus, we try to pay more attention to how investors are actually positioned, not what they're saying about you know, how they're feeling, which is uh, sort of a fluffier uh, thing that's more difficult to measure. So we look at things like the Fed's flow of funds data, commitment of traders report for hedge fund positioning, and a lot of options data. Okay. All um, right. That's so, all interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, right now, in terms of positioning, there are really two measures that stick out to us. First, you know, back up for a second, you could divide uh, the investor world into two classes of investors. On the one hand, you've got individual investors like you and me. And on the other hand, you've got institutional investors like pension funds and endowments. And we can do our best to sort of look at them separately. 
So according to the Federal Reserve data, uh, retail exposure to stocks is currently at all-time highs mm. uh, ever, as long as we have data going back to the 1940s. Household exposure uh, to equities is upward of 40% right now. So that's a lot. Uh, that's retail exposure. We, we can also use the Fed data to back into a proxy for how much cash institutional investors have on the sidelines, uh, which would be another measure of positioning, uh, right? What percent of their equity portfolios are actually sitting in dollars rather than equities? Uh, this would be a little easier if we could show you on a chart, but you just have to take well, what, what is it, it now in the in cash versus equities for the... So among institutional investors right now, cash is about a 5% allocation. Um, and this okay. is a low level relative to history. Uh, we know from looking at prior periods of, of real financial stress, you know, the dot-com bubble and the great financial crisis and, and so on, we know that during periods of financial stress, the cash balances can move up to 10% or 15% uh, pretty easily. So you know, none of this is to say that retail exposure to equities or institutional exposure to equities needs to be you know, cut in half right now or over the next few months. It is to say uh, that right now, investors as a whole... Uh, no matter which class are overweight risk and they're overweight stocks. Mm -hmm. And that increases the probability of nonlinear moves to the downside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, so and yeah. And just, just to, to jump in, I mean, the, the stock market, you need to invest cash for it to move upward. And if nobody has cash to invest, if it's already allocated, then how's it going to move up? Right. Right. Exactly. That's the underlying, that's the underlying logic. And that's why we look at positioning data rather than sentiment data, because mm. I can be fully invested <laughs> and also nervous about the economy and also have my sentiment be bearish, especially if my mandate is to be fully invested. Right. Mm. And typically after a long bull market, more and more investors have mandates to be fully invested because the ones that haven't been fully invested have underperformed over a long period of time. So mm. they get pressure from their limited partners to start, you know, running with more I don't want to call out any investors by names, but if you follow hedge fund letters, you know that this is a relatively common theme among bottom-up stock pickers. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but anyway, I mean, in, in conclusion to the original point, the idea that recessions can't happen, happen when people are, are bearish is kind of silly. Positioning by itself can't drive multi-month, multi-quarter moves in asset prices. Really, the economic fundamentals are what do that. But second, people aren't really bearish <laughs> if you look at right. the hard data. So sure. I think making the case that, you know, there can't be a recession because people are too bullish is sort of both premises of that statement are off in our sure, sure. Let's talk about the underlying fundamentals of the economic fundamentals. I mean, we have unemployment at, low, I don't know, record lows, but close to it, almost full employment. Uh, consumers appear to be in good shape, again, based on surveys. And okay, inflation is running hot, but... There are, you know, but the real estate market, again, higher mortgage rates cutting into it, but it's pretty good. And uh, so, and those are typically things that would lead to a slowdown in the, in the economy if they were the other way. So what, what can end the economic expansion, if not that? I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. So in terms of the uh, fundamental economic setup, maybe I'll start with what's going on organically, and then I'll, I'll move to the, the bigger picture with the Fed. So uh, it helps to take a step back and look at what was happening last year. So last year we had a great, uh, one, we had a great market, but the reason we had a great market is because we had a great organic economic situation. We were going into the reopening, you know, uh, you know, the vaccines had just come out. We were comping 2020, which was like the year the earth stood still because of the lockdowns. So that was, that's a very attractive, Setup right, growth was going to be high no matter what, and of course it was. Real GDP printed 
12.2%. Uh, consumer spending was up 30%. And uh, we're coming off of some, you know, super hot fiscal stimulus. Monetary conditions were super accommodative, right? Interest rates were pinned at zero. Uh, you know, the, the QE was large enough that I'm going to get the number wrong. It's $100 billion a month or something like that. Um, and, you know, that's a cocktail for tremendous performance from risk assets. And that's exactly what we saw, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, this year, uh, 2022 is sort of the opposite story because all of those things uh, are sort of reversing, right? So we... <laughs> We had the reopening set up before, now we're comping the reopening, right? So the base effects went from being super easy last year to super challenging this year. I mean, arguably the most challenging base effects since I think as far back as I have data anyway. Uh, so the organic situation is much different. We're not gonna get any sort of fiscal stimulus like we saw over the last two years, uh, in part because there's no impetus for it, right? There's no uh, COVID issues right now. And two, stimulating works out of a deflationary, it, it helps resolve deflationary issues but it doesn't help resolve inflationary issues. It actually makes them worse because the whole idea of stimulating is to sort of bump up aggregate demand. So what was a fiscal tailwind will now become fiscal drag. It'll be a fiscal headwind. And of course, the Fed has uh, committed to sort of draining liquidity out of the system and tightening monetary conditions. And I'm happy to talk about some contrarian views as regards to that, if you'd like to. Yeah, let's get into that because I mean, so far they've only they've only done one interest rate hike of 25 basis points, which is the, basically the smallest they, they can do. They're talking now about 50 or even 75 at the next meeting in a couple of weeks. But you know, people have said that, and guests on this show have said this that it's just jawboning. And and not only that, but they point to the the history of it, like the Powell Fed before his reverse course when markets went against them against it back in the fourth quarter of 2018, and so. Uh, yeah, what, what do you make of all that? Um, so I think, yeah, like you said, there's this notion that the Fed is, has just started tightening, that it's only tightened a little bit because Fed funds is still between 25 and 50 basis points. That's the, the corridor. Uh, it's it's really easy to say things like, you know, the Fed has no credibility. The Fed, you know, will never raise rates. The Fed can just sort of be the punching bag. Mm. <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I enjoy that too. Me too. Uh, but um, to say that the Fed can't tighten or, or won't tighten or hasn't tightened, um, it's not really true. And it sort of misses the point of how the Fed actually tightens policy. So first, maybe it's helpful to take a step back. What is the ultimate goal of tightening monetary policy? It's to make business conditions, fundamental business conditions, more challenging in order to slow aggregate demand and ultimately reduce inflation and inflation expectations, right? Inflation is the result of supply and demand for goods and services. By reducing demand, you reduce the price level. Uh, so how does that manifest? Well, it manifests through things like higher mortgage rates, which you mentioned earlier, that makes buying a home more expensive. It reduces demand for new homes. It reduces, reduces demand for things that go along with homes, like home furnishings, which is obviously a very big industry. It drives a lot of spending. Higher rates across the treasury curve also mean higher cost of debt for the private sector, as well as the public sector, right? Tightening also frequently coincides with widening credit spreads, which we've seen a little bit of, but it hasn't been terrible. So what you end up getting is higher private sector borrowing costs as credit risk is repriced higher alongside the benchmark rate. A stronger dollar is another classic sign of tightening that also tends to reduce business activity because, well, it makes international finance more expensive for foreign counterparties, right? So as the dollar becomes more expensive to their own currencies, it becomes harder for them to service their dollar denominated obligations. For example, interest payments on euro dollar debt, or the cost of commodities, right? As the dollar becomes more expensive, you have to buy oil in dollars. So if you're, you know, 
the European Union or Japan or whatever, you're, you're paying in something that you have to convert into dollars, which is more expensive to buy oil, which, you know, by the way, right now is going up on its own. So the, the, the stronger dollar makes it even more challenging. A flattening yield curve is another symptom of, of tightening, makes spread lending less attractive to capital providers. So anyway, what do all these things have in common? They're measures of tightness that can be measured in real time because they're either tradable assets or derivatives of tradable assets. And that means one, they're observable in real time, and two, that they're discounting mechanisms because they're pulling forward expectations for future rate hikes. I, I think the mistake that a lot of strategists are making right now is they're just looking at indicators like the Fed funds rate or the size of the Fed's balance sheet. So they're saying, hey, Fed funds is still super low relative to history. The size of the balance sheet is at all time highs. That means that there hasn't really been any tightening, but that's kind of analogous to just looking at reported economic data, like looking at you know, uh, Q4 GDP. I mean, I realized that the Q1 advanced estimate came out this morning, but it's like looking at GDP for Q4 of last year and saying, oh, it's 5.5, 5.6% and ignoring the fact that a lot can change in three months. And you know, that was a while ago. So if you're just looking at Fed funds, you're just looking at the balance sheet, it's always going to lag what's actually happening in real time, just like with any reported economic data. I think the reason this is confusing for a lot of strategists maybe is that back in the old days prior to, I think it was the 94, 95 hiking cycle, the Fed did not prioritize communications nearly to the same extent that it does today. So bankers would come into the office and they'd realize, oh, hey, the Fed you know, bumped up rates 25 basis points last night. Today, the Fed is constantly communicating with investors and updating its views. Um, you know, that, That's all to say 25 or 30 years ago, the Fed funds rate was the primary way that the Fed tightened. And it was probably the best way to measure monetary tightness in real time. Today, the Fed's first tool for monetary policy is communications and sort of letting the market tighten by itself and actually doing anything, right? Like raising the Fed funds rate or running off the balance sheet, that kind of comes second. And the reason that this is really important is that from an asset allocation perspective, Fed policy is super important. And yeah, of course. Looking into our process at Invictus, there's really only three things that matter and Fed policy, monetary conditions uh, is one of them. First, because the ease or tightness of Fed policy has an immediate impact on discount rates, which has you know sort of a, a huge impact on long duration assets in particular, which we've seen in sort of the, the crash in uh, you know, ARC and internet stocks and pretty much anything with a high terminal value relative to its current cash flows, or it's biotech's gotten, gotten whacked. That's where you've seen the worst weakness uh, in this market. But the second reason we care about monetary conditions is it has an impact on real economic conditions, like we talked about earlier, and eventually it hits the growth cycle. So uh, right. maybe that's a good so, place to stop. Yeah, let me let me go back real quick on this, on, because that's an in- really interesting point about communication. And the Fed actually, they, they didn't, Powell, they didn't have press conferences prior to like, what was it, maybe 10 years ago or so. Like Bernanke, I don't think they, they just, it wasn't a policy of theirs to have press conferences, to take questions from media. And as far as all these other Fed speakers that they wheel out all the time to, who knows how much of their speaking on their own versus how much is, is dictated to them. You know, that's, that's another thing that definitely moves markets. Has there been any communication from the Fed that you know of or that you've seen that's documented this, that said we are going to dictate policy by our public statements in addition to the movement of interest rates? I don't remember exactly where the minute or where, where the comments were off the top of my head, but I know that Fed officials have said things like the minutes are a communication tool, right? Like okay. it's not meant to be, you know, a look inside each member of the Fed's brain. It's meant to be something that investors can look at 
to get a feel for what the Fed wants them to think. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how widely known that is, but it, it is documented Wait, somewhere. But that's the minutes. Those only come out for after every meeting. You're talking about the, the yeah, right? That's what you're talking about. Right. But the, that yeah. comment was in reference to minutes. You're right. I mean, but there's other comments, you know, like if Powell's at his press conferences and these other guys at all their speaking engagements and things. So what, to what extent is that, you think, also driving the whole policy? No, I mean, big time. I think you can mm -hmm. see like, you know, Bullard will say something bullish and, the, you know, the markets will react very quickly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I think to, to imagine that the Fed doesn't know that the markets are pricing that in and that, you know, mortgage rates don't respond to comments like that. Of course, the Fed knows that they're not mm -hmm. dumb. You know, yeah. there's a tr I think there is a trope that you know, maybe the Fed is dumb. Uh, they're not yeah. dumb at all. They know exactly yeah. what they're doing. And I think yeah. sometimes they make mistakes, but sure. the mistakes aren't being made because, you know, they're, they're stupid or they're ignorant. Yeah. You know, the mistakes are made because they're, you know, human okay. beings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Really interesting. Yeah. And, and like all of, I'm not a super Fed watcher, but all of the all the recent commentary has been very hawkish, um, most notably by Powell himself. His last comments before the blackout period where he basically penciled in a 50 uh, basis point rate hike. So, yeah, so it does seem that that is, that is something. But that's just for the near term. Now, what do you think about the longer term as far as like interest rate policy? Uh, <laughs> um, so maybe I'll start with over the intermediate term because everyone focuses a lot on what Jay Powell says about what, you know, what they're going to do at the next meeting. And I think that is very important. Uh, and I think that there's certainly a cottage industry of Fed watchers that are very good at dissecting the tone of what the various uh, Fed officials are saying. Uh, at Invictus, we are more interested in what the markets are telling us mm. uh, because I don't have a, a CIA degree in investigative you know, body language or anything like that. That's not uh, my forte anyway, but I can tell you- Too bad, that would make for an interesting guess, by the way, but go ahead, sorry, yeah. <laughs> but I can tell you exactly what the markets are pricing in. Right. Uh, and the markets tend to be tend to be smarter than uh, any one individual analyst. And I can tell you that right now, basically since November, the Fed has been or the markets have been pricing in an aggressively more hawkish Fed, basically in a straight line. I mean, you could see you know monetary conditions ease very slightly when Russia invaded Ukraine. So, you know, my projection on that is that maybe the markets thought if there is a conflict that really involves the U.S., the Fed won't want to tighten too won't want to be too restrictive. Um, but that that was over and done with in a few weeks, and uh, the markets continue to price in tighter monetary conditions. So, you know, I think eventually the Fed will break something. Intermediate term view is that the Fed will continue to tighten until the markets tell them loud and clear, "Hey, you're break you're breaking something," and the Fed says we have to stop. Over the very long term, um, well, I have less of a view on how you know whether the Fed will be restrictive or less restrict restrictive relative to the so-called neutral rate, right? Uh, I do have a view that rates in general will probably go down over the long term. Mm, that's pretty contrarian. Yeah. I mean, it, it just depends on how long term you're talking, but yeah. Right. And I, I could be totally wrong. Nothing, nothing I say that's super long term is really investable because we pay such close attention to yeah. the market. But, you know, what are what drives rates over the long term? Let's say like the 30 year. Well, it's real growth and inflation. Right. And uh, so if. You know, over the last 40 years, real growth and inflation have been trending downward, right? Productivity growth has been trending downward. More importantly, really, demographic conditions have been trending downward, you know, fertility rates, growth in the labor force, and, and so on. America, like most developed markets, has been aging. So if you're going to make the case, and that's, that's disinflationary as well. I mean, slower aggregate demand means slower growth and slower inflation. So I think if you're going to make the case for higher rates, 
you have to make the case that both uh, growth or either growth or inflation will trend up. I think the case that people are making for higher rates right now is that you know we're going to see a sort of a secular inflation uh, take hold. And I can tell you that that's not my view right now. But you know, if I get enough evidence that that is what's happening, then I'll change my mind. Right. Oh, that's interesting because you would think that a Fed would need inflation to be high for them to continue to want to raise rates, right? And if we were coming off of these lower base, well, we had the lower base effects, but now we're back up to high base. So you figure like the year over year CPI print wouldn't, shouldn't be that dramatic anymore, or maybe starting in a couple months. Right. Our expectation, you know, it always feels dangerous to call top. <laughs> yeah. Our expectation at Invictus is uh, that we should start to see decelerating CPI prints in year over year terms. Uh, in other words, that, that 8.5, 8.6% print from, uh, I guess it was March. That should be the high point, we think. think. And we, we expect it to decline to, you know, calling an exact bottom is also kind of a fool's errand, but maybe call it three or 4% by the end of 2022. So it'll still be high relative to history, yeah. probably high enough to keep the Fed, you know, not easing at least if it's not tightening. Mm -hmm. But then from there, it'll, you know, lower highs and lower lows until it gets back to around 2%. That's our expectation. Okay. Okay. That's really interesting. Okay. You un unwrapped a bunch of stuff here for us. And I want to get into some more details on this, what this means in terms of asset allocation, with the understanding, of course, that neither of us are providing any investment advice, do your own research, make your own decisions. But I want to first take a short break and come back. If you are a premium subscriber, don't go anywhere. Don't touch the dial. You will not get the break. We'll be right back. And if you want to be a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded, transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. You don't actually need the tech suffix. You can also visit contrarian.supercast.com or our substack, contrarianpod.substack.com. Prices have increased a little bit since uh, this recording was made by my esteemed colleague, but they are still very much affordable for retail investors. I believe it is now $11.99 a month but you do get a discount if you sign up for the year. So do so at contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Now back to the podcast. I welcome back everybody here with Michael Singleton of Invictus Research. That means unbeaten, right? Yeah, unconquerable, something to that effect. Ah, I knew it. Okay, good. And so this is a segment of the show where we ask our guests to tell us a little bit more about themselves, how they came to this station in life. I call this the origin story to put things in Marvel terms of how they came to investing. So yeah, take us away 
and uh, tell us about how it all began and how it all led to your current station in life. Okay, so maybe I'll, I'll start with college. I attended the University of Notre Dame and, you know, sort of a funny story. As a freshman before the football games, I would sell cigars at the football tailgates, right? And that was probably cigars. the best job ever in terms of, uh, you know, how much money you could make per hour. Wait, hang <laughs> so on, I cigars, decided... not beers. Cigars? No, no. Yeah, just cigars, not beers. Can uh, you smoke in the stands there? No, it was at the tailgate. So, oh, I'm sorry, the tailgates. Right, sure. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, have a, a barbecue sandwich and a beer and 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 uh, you know a cigar. Um, but like I said, that was a great job for me anyway. And so I decided pretty quickly that I wanted to do business. Uh, after Notre Dame, I worked at a private investment firm called Broadrun Investment Management. Uh, it was a, a fabulous experience. I had um, a ton of autonomy from very very early on. I got to lead my own investments. I got to. I uh, traveled to conferences. I got to talk with some of the smartest investors on the street. And uh, let me tell you, I mean, some of the analysts out there are really geniuses. I don't mean that metaphorically. They're, they're crazy, crazy smart. But what I noticed was that Wall Street was also very uh, compartmentalized. You know, research departments would have a guy covering industrial stocks, another guy covering commodities, another guy covering technology. And so um, what I'd noticed is that a lot of these guys, when they'd make a stock call and get it wrong, um, particularly on the buy side. I mean, the sell side has its own sort of conflicts of interest that I'm not really addressing now. But when the buy side people would get stuff wrong, it, it was almost never because they were dumb or they weren't smart. It was usually because they were missing the forest for the trees. They were missing the business cycle um, because they were focused on their niche. They were super focused on technology stocks. And so they weren't paying attention to, say, monetary conditions, right? Or at least not until after monetary conditions had driven their stock down 80%. <laughs> yeah. And uh, ironically, if you'd asked a lot of these people individually, hey, do you believe in the business cycle? They'd be like, oh yeah, of course the business cycle exists, but it wasn't their job. Um, and so they didn't have a means of integrating it into their process. So that was sort of the foundation for Invictus in terms of the idea is that we would do all of the legwork around analyzing the business cycle and we deliver it to you in sort of short, easily digestible videos, you know, five or 10 minutes. Uh, we think of them as sort of a replacement for reading the business section of the newspaper. So so often, and I fall into this too, you know, I read the newspaper, read Bloomberg, read the journal or whatever, and it, you end up sort of reading it for entertainment value. Yeah. Um, and you don't, when you finish reading it, you don't have anything useful to take away from it. You know, for example, I was reading a Bloomberg article yesterday about Bill Huang, the, you know, mm -hmm. Archegos capital guy, and what his motivations were for, you know, investing the way he did. And I think the author concluded that he had no idea. And I was, you know, when I finished, I was like, <laughs> this was really entertaining, but this is more like entertainment news masquerading as business news. And people spend a lot of time reading the news every day, you know, 30 minutes, an hour. And that's what everyone tells you to do. But I think if everyone took five or 10 minutes to you know, consume something more like Invictus, understand where we are in the business cycle, what the implications are for forward returns, you know, given where we are, that would be a much better use of time than, you know, reading through the, you know, call it the entertainment section of the <laughs> business section or, uh, or something to that effect. Uh, so that's what we do at Invictus. That's our goal. Interesting. That's funny because that's kind of the, the impetus for this podcast was kind of the same. And, you know, obviously I have a long background in, in news and news writing and, and all that stuff. And so one of the things I, I, I try not to, I, I don't think anybody should really read any news stories. They don't need to other than for entertainment. The headlines tell you everything you need to know. Well, you have to be careful, though, because the head, you have to know what kind of story it is and you have to know what kind of headline it is. 
because a lot of times people are just pushing clickbait, not to mention any specific examples um, other than uh, Business Insider. Anyway, so so yeah, so the, so I, I I find it that to be a, a, a very valid point. So Invictus, basically, your idea is to kind of figure out the the business cycle and to identify that, and then base your the asset allocation around that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So um, I think the business cycle is you know a somewhat widely accepted idea, um, mm-hmm. but I'll I'll define it anyway. So. You can think of the business cycle as the nominal growth cycle, right? And that's primarily what drives the returns of the stock market, the bond market, the commodity market, the Forex market, right? Is the, the various business cycles. And you can decompose that into the real growth cycle and the inflation cycle. Uh, and so if you get those two things right, well, first of all, cycle implies that something isn't random. Um, so if something cycles, that means it trends and then peaks and then troughs and then trends and then peaks and then troughs. And just that understanding is revelatory for a lot of people. Uh, and it was for me, uh, because it means that you can sort of play the odds, right? Uh, last year, when, <laughs> through the reopening, when we saw these sort of ridiculous reopening growth prints, like 12.2%, 30% for consumer, you know with a very high degree of certainty that growth is going to decelerate from there. there there's no economist in the world that thinks, you know, the U.S. can sustain you know, double-digit real growth, that the consumer can sustain 30% spending, uh, no one thinks that. And yet you had a lot of people at the time, you know, even if they weren't using the language of the business cycle, sort of tacitly assuming that growth could continue like that forever, um, which is ridiculous. So anyway, that's what we mean when we talk about the business cycle, the real, the real growth cycle and the inflation cycle. And then the third thing that matters is monetary conditions, which we talked about earlier. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit Contrarian dot supercast dot tech for more information. So I guess this all begs the question, what part of the business cycle are we in now? I guess so, we talked about it a bunch at the outset, but we, not implicitly. So yeah, go ahead. Our view is clearly that real growth is slowing. I think it's, I think it's hard, especially with the, you know, the advanced estimate that just came out this morning. It's hard to make the case that growth isn't slowing. We expect it to continue to slow. The bigger question is around inflation mm. and uh, you know, we have our estimates for CPI. We told you earlier, we think that we've seen the sort of peak in the year over year print. I'll say though, that we would not invest in a disinflationary manner until we see confirmation from the asset markets, right? So right now we're still seeing inflationary, you know, we've, we've seen them cool off a little bit the last few days, but really, I mean, we want to see trending, um, you know, a trending, I don't know what the right word is, relaxation of performance from these inflationary exposures. So we'd like to see things like break even start to make lower highs. Uh, we'd like to see oil start to make lower highs. We'd like to see energy stocks start to show relative underperformance. That's what we mean by confirmation from the asset markets. Okay. Um, and the reason is the reason that we wait for that is, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about the fundamental story and modeling and all of that stuff. But the, the unfortunate reality is people, including us at Invictus, model the economy incorrectly from the bottom up all the time, <laughs> more often than not. Right. But the market never gets the business cycle wrong, never. Uh, the market is a reflection of the business cycle. So uh, the business cycle keeps us honest, so to speak. If we get something wrong in terms of growth or inflation by a quarter or by you know a few basis points, the market keeps us from getting it really wrong. And when the market tells us we're wrong for long enough, we have to change our mind. So it's sort of a risk management protocol. So, okay, so what does that mean for asset classes, right? I mean, growth has gotten bludgeoned and it doesn't look like we're anywhere near the part of the cycle that would 
indicate a, a return to growth stocks. Staples have done okay um, for the most part. Could they do more? You know, things like energy, um, cyclicals, I guess, there too, you would think that, I don't know. Yeah, what, that is the question. Where, so what does one do? Okay, so earlier we said that the three staples of our you know, investment outlook for right now are slower growth, which is being validated by the asset market. So you know, we're happy to invest that way. Slower inflation, which is not yet really being validated by the asset markets and tightening monetary conditions, which is definitely being validated by right. the asset market. So good investing is all about leveraging where you can have conviction, right? And minimizing uh, exposure to areas where you can't have conviction. So right now we would not be expressing a large view about inflation in our portfolio one way or the other, because it's just not a place where we have super strong conviction yet. Okay. Um, so that rose out energy. Uh -huh. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. So, you know, it would be either like neutral or, you know, it depends on how you manage your portfolio, but we would be more confident expressing a view on growth. So shorting um, cyclicals going long defensive, something like that, right? The, the ratio of cyclical stocks to defensive stocks also tracks the growth cycle extremely closely. I mean, there's virtually no situation where growth is de declining precipitously and cyclicals are outperforming defensives. It just does not happen. So as long as growth is declining, defensive, so think, you know, staples, uh, large caps relative to small caps, utilities, large cap healthcare, managed care providers, uh, those should be outperforming exposures relative to certainly cyclicals, but also defensives as a whole. Tightening monetary conditions is also a view that we've been expressing for a while. And obviously the easiest way to, to short that is, or to express that view is to short long duration equities or to you know underweight them. So we have a weekly trade ideas product. And what are long duration equity, you mean bonds? No, long, long duration equities, really what we mean is uh, equities where the high percentage of the valuation is located in the terminal value, right? Okay. So just as a sort of function of the way a DCF works, long duration equities will have a lot of sensitivity to interest rate risk and you know what we call tightening monetary conditions, right? So um, that would be exposures like uh, technology tends mm. to be faster growth, right? Naturally, biotechnology. A lot of those companies don't really earn any revenue, let alone free cash flow. But the expectation is that you know eventually they hit big on something and they do earn a lot of money. But it's somewhere in the future, so they're very sensitive to monetary conditions. Uh, Arc has been a terrific place to look for shorts, and you know I think it's really funny. Arc has done terribly, of course, and people are very quick to blame that on Kathy Woods. But the reality is, I don't, I don't, I mean, I haven't done a real performance attribution on the ARC funds, but people don't seem to understand that she invests in a very specific way. She, like her, her mandate is essentially to invest in the fastest growing companies. And that exposes her to sector risk and style factors that are going to go through periods of insane outperformance and insane underperformance, right? And it's almost not a function of her stock picking skills at all. As long as she sticks with that mandate, she's going to have massive exposure to, you know, basically duration risk. And so the fact that she's down so much, you know, maybe it's a function of her stock picking skills too, but. Uh, no, no, I think that's perfectly fair, but where, where that goes, that thing goes belly up is when you look at her comments and about how she keeps doubling down on, on like how, you know, these stocks are, the stock that they invest in are, are an inflation hedge, they're great, they're going to do better, that's a huge buying opportunity, blah, blah, blah. She's been saying that the whole way down and so that's kind of like, if she were just on, I mean, who knows if she's being honest now or whatever, but if she were just to say, 
look, this is what we do. There are times in the economy when this is better than others, and this has happened one of the poor times. You know, that would probably be, but then who knows? Maybe then she'd get outflows. <laughs> and she hasn't had that much in outflows, has she? No, not really. And you're, yeah. and you're right. I, I don't know. <laughs> she has made some comments that don't make sense to me economically. Right. So I, I don't know what that, I don't know what's motivating that. Probably marketing. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, but that's, that's, that's fascinating. Okay. So that would be, all right. So you're saying, you know, long utilities and, and, and uh, staples. Um, okay. Well, that's not, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Um, right. Now, what about, what do we do anything with bonds? I mean, what about the, you know, the, are those starting to look at all attractive for you there? Like, where, where do you view that? That's a great question. Uh, and this is, this is a reason that we use the market to validate our ideas uh, and our forecasts. It would make sense that in a risk-off market regime, which I think we're going through one right now, I think mm -hmm. that's fair to say, it would make sense that bonds would do well, right? Because treasury, besides US dollars, treasuries are the safest asset on earth, right? So if we have, we're having this risk-off economic market situation, why aren't treasury bonds catching a bid? And the answer is because the Fed is tightening monetary conditions. It's intentionally raising rates and that has an impact on the entire curve. So <laughs> I think bonds start to do better when, this sounds self-referential, so I apologize for that, but bonds start to do better when they start signaling to the Fed that they've broken something and the Fed has to take its foot off the gas. So uh, I know well, that sort that? of sounds like saying- For the 10 year, 3%, I mean, yeah. I don't think, I'm of a mind that the Fed has already tightened a lot. Mm -hmm. I would be surprised to see rates uh, surpass their 2018 highs. Mm -hmm. What's my logic? Well, what governs leverage in any uh, system, or excuse me, what governs interest rates in any system? What's the amount of leverage that the system can sustain, right? Mm -hmm. So we have substantially more debt now than we did in 2018, which was the last policy cycle. So you would imagine that we could not, we, you know, the interest rates our economy could sustain would be lower. Mm -hmm. um, that said, the Fed can still push rates higher, even when the market's saying you're, you're breaking something, right? If they think that it's that important to um, reduce inflation, we're willing to break stuff. Uh, so that's why we rate for validation is because I don't know exactly what the Fed is going to do. Um, I'd imagine <laughs> at some point uh, they're going to ease up and bonds will start to outperform, but I don't know exactly when that will be. So that's why we wait for the market signal. Mm -hmm. Although I think the last couple of days, I think bonds have done a little better here. Um, You're right. There are some signals that that might be happening now. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, there aren't enough to say that it's confirmed in our view, but look like you're starting to see the beginning of what we would call bear steepening, right? Where, mm -hmm. you know, the yield curve is steepening, but it's not a reflationary steepening. It's not a healthy steepening. Mm. Uh, it's sort of a bearish steepening uh, where short rates are going down faster than long rates or mm. you know, short-term bonds are outperforming long-term bonds. Mm -hmm. uh, very short very short measures of yield curvature, like the three-month, two-year are flattening a little bit. They're making lower highs. Um, again, too, too early to say like, hey, we've reached the break point and the Fed's reversing course. But these are things that we're watching very closely because yeah. that could signal an end to monetary conditions tightening so aggressively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think the Fed will do in, at the next meeting? I think what the markets are implying, 50 or 75 mm -hmm. basis points, probably one of okay. those. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, okay, yeah. But definitely fifth, not 25. I don't think so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be, yeah, that's definitely, that would certainly be a, at this well, point. Well, when people surprised. say that the Fed has no credibility, if the Fed did 25, I think that would reduce its credibility. Right, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, probably. If they did zero, that would really reduce. That, yeah, no, they can't. That, that would be insane. Even they are. I agree. That, that would be bad. Yeah, no, they could, yeah, 
Interesting. Very interesting conversation here. Michael Singleton, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. In closing, uh, maybe tell our listeners how they can find out more about you and about Invictus. I believe you are on the social media. So yeah, what, what are those? And I'll put that in the show notes as well if you miss it. But yeah, go ahead. Sure. So uh, if you want to learn more about the Invictus product suite, uh, take a look at invictus-research.com and uh, follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Invictus Macro. Invictus Macro, one word. One word. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thank you, Michael, for coming on. Thank you for your time. Thank you all for listening. And we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.